This is Pete Moore. I want to tell you about a company that is going to change the entire recruiting in the Halo sector. The company's called GamePlan. We are GamePlan.com. What they do is they connect employer brands with D1, D2, D3 athletes across the country. They power the software that allows these employers to get in front of tens of thousands of athletes. If you watch the NCAA tournament, the hustle, grit, preparation, determination, and absolute desire to win embodies every athlete out there. Now you're gonna be able to put your brand in front of those athletes, start to get them to understand after their college career, they can get into the halo sector, go work at a studio, a health club, fitness equipment company, supplements, anything related to this industry, they can now parlay those skills and bring it into the sports and fitness industry that we are going to have the best athletes become the best employees and create the best companies. And that is the future of Halo. One, two, three, Halo. We are gameplan.com. Check it out. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I had the pleasure of having, after several rescheduled pay-per-view audio events, a man that does not need an intro, but I'll give him one, Joel Goldberg, cultivating a championship culture. You might have heard his voice before. You might have seen him in seminars, sharing wisdom on the difference and the benefits of sports, meeting business. Joel, welcome to finally on Halo Talks. Hey, third, I think a third time's a charm. I don't know if it was fourth, but we 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 made it happen, so that's good. I think uh, you know when you got when you got guys moving in a lot of different directions, plus life, like me and you and so many others, this happens. But it's meant to be, and so it's good to be here with you. And I know that there, you know, even just having seen your book, Pete, there's so many similarities to the sports world and what I call the real world. So I think the sports world is kind of make believe at times, but yet the lessons learned in there apply to everybody. You know, from a standpoint of, uh, you know, growing up, I was uh, a sports goalie at first. One, because uh, I was uh, I didn't have to uh, run around because I used to get my dad's change out of the uh, change machine and chase the ice cream man and put like a uh, big league <laughs> chew and, uh, you know, candy cigarettes and candy coins underneath oh, yeah. the radio. So uh, I was a little chubby as a kid and uh, the soccer goalie was great, but I kind of always felt like I could see the field. I was kind of like the general in the back and I just had to make sure that we didn't lose and other guys were responsible for winning. So, you know, given how many games you've seen, given the people and the personalities you've been around, um, obviously you talk about this in your book and in your lectures, but you know, how do you kind of create a winning culture that is sustainable and not just like a dynasty and all these teams now kind of have like these rebuilding years? Yeah, it, it's, it's a great question and it's an interesting one. And I think it pertains to business as well on the, on the simplest of level, and of course, none of this is simple. I, I think that culture can never be something where you just check the box. Once you have built that culture, you're not done. It takes every single day. And so I'll give you the example of, uh, of the team that I've covered now for 15 seasons, the Kansas City Royals. When I arrived there in 2008, coming from St. Louis, where I'd worked previously, the the general manager at the time, Dayton Moore, who is now their president, said to me, I'm trying to build a championship culture that they didn't have one. Now, if you compare that to St. Louis, yes, yeah, St. Louis has great history. You know, when you talk about baseball history, you're going to talk about the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Cardinals, franchises like that. But you 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 can't just say, OK, we're the Yankees and then you're done. 
And I think if you look at, say, the New York Yankees, oftentimes they can make up for any issues they have by spending money. I think if you get to a smaller market or think about a small to medium-sized business, they have to get that culture right. You can't buy culture. And so when Dayton Moore told me I'm looking to build a championship culture, he built it. They won a world championship in 2015 in part because of their culture. They didn't have the best talent in baseball because they were outspent by many. Then they ended up losing again. That was the financial side of things of, hey, we can't keep everyone. But what I can tell you is from 2015 to 2022, while their wins and losses reflected some struggles in that downside, the culture never changed. They had to rebuild their talent. They didn't have to rebuild their culture. And I think that that the culture is the harder part to buy because you can't buy that yeah. or to build so, it. You know, when, when you think about, you know, if, if you and I and, and Dave were kind of flies in the room, you know, either during a draft day or, you know, uh, when we're thinking about doing a trade and we're trying to think about, okay, what's the salary cap and, you know, how much of, of baseball, you know, I kind of shifted towards like this money ball and analytics and everyone's probably seen that movie, you know, how do you kind of put a price tag on like, hey, look, this guy could be awesome. He's at the right price, but there's something off about his ability to fit into a team or I'm going to diligence that as much as I can. Like I know Belichick and, and, the, and the Patriots, you know, they do hardcore background checks. Of, you know, obviously Aaron Hernandez, but excluding him, they kind of get a lot of people right. Or when somebody is a little bit off the reservation, when they come in, like they fit into the culture, how much of that is, you know, layers of, you know, cultural history, like how they manage the team or, you know, thinking about like, we're bigger than you and you're going to, you're going to, you know, evolve into who you, we want you to be. It's extensive. And I think, look, every team in every org, in every professional sports organization, well, let's at least talk about the big sports. You know, I mean, we're talking in the United States, NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, and some of the others, MLS too. But when you look at at um, these leagues that are paying players in the millions, these are these are major investments. They all do their background checks. The question to me is, do they live by the background checks? What are they willing to turn and look the other way? Now, let's get back to what I said about the Yankees. And I'm not saying the Yankees look the other way. But if you're the Yankees, if you're the Dodgers, if you have an unlimited payroll, they would tell you it's not unlimited. But, you know, the smaller Francis would say it certainly seems like it. You can miss on that. If you miss on a guy and and you feel like, well, okay, he could be a problem here, but we'll fix him. It'll be okay. If you miss, you eat it. You move on and you get somebody else. I always like to say that the teams like the Yankees, they've got a they've got a higher credit card limit. So if you are in a smaller or medium sized market, a Milwaukee, a Kansas City, a St. Louis, uh, even a, a Tampa Bay, uh, a Baltimore, they can't miss because they get to their credit card limit. So back to what I said before, they have to get that right. But I think to your point about the bell checks and the background checks, they all have robust budgets to be able to look there shouldn't be any surprises with these guys i'm not talking about this guy goes off the rails and something happens legally i mean you can't predict everything but you generally have an idea of what you're getting and by the way 
it's not like the Kansas City Royals sit there and say, we can only have the perfect person. You, you know that you're going you're gonna to have to take some people with their warts. But can they, as you said, Pete, can they fit in? Can, can they mold into that culture? And look, the Royals and other teams will take guys that aren't perfect. But can they be that right piece that fits in? You don't necessarily have to change them, but they have to be able to fit into that role and to be able to, to conform to a little bit of, and I always say culture is, is who you are as an organization. Uh, when I came to Kansas City, there was no Royals way. There mm-hmm. was a Cardinals way. There's a Red Sox way. I feel like if you have the word way after your name, that there is an identity to that organization. What I can tell you now is that when people come to the Royals, they may leave because they can go find money, better money elsewhere. And I don't blame them for that. They've got a small window to, to make millions and millions of dollars. A lot of them come back because they realize, okay, now that I've made that money, let me go back to the place that I was treated right. Let me go back to the place that is a little bit more real. So they've, they've established that identity in a way that the, you know, I know a lot of fans hate the, the Patriots, me included. You either, you either love them or hate them. There's no in between, but they do things right. Yeah. So before we move on to the, the, the business analogies and, and if you're comfortable talking about this, but, you know, Cleveland Browns, who's got a lot of history. Um, you know, I would say over time, kind of moral and ethics, you know, they, they, they've done the right thing. You know, if you look at their, the coaches that are head coaches in the league, a lot of them started the Cleveland Browns, you know, when you look at Belichick and you look at, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, was Parcells part of that squad also, it was probably like a dozen coaches that came out of that, that, that Cleveland Browns. And then, you know, they, they make a selection on a quarterback, obviously innocent until proven guilty. Um, but you think there's like some teams that basically say, look, if we win, you know, like we get a, we get a little wider lens of, you know, what's acceptable on, on the morality side or on the culture side. And I feel like there's really no happy ending in a lot of those, because once you kind of enter a slippery slope and it's just like, you know, not to, not to bash Peloton, um, you know, on the company side, but, you know, when you come out and say certain things, um, you got to own what comes out of your mouth. And you also got to think before you do that. And you also, start to go down a path that, you know, there's really no way to kind of exit ramp back to morality. I I agree with you totally. And I think that I'll, I'll, I'll go back and take it a, maybe a step further to say that, yeah, winning, maybe it opens up more doors to do some things or, but I, I, I think it starts before that. I think, I think the Pandora's box is opened because of the allure of winning and then you can't go back. So um, the Cleveland Browns made a very concerted decision to ignore the moral. You're right. Innocent until proven guilty. But why is everyone questioning the morals of what they just did? Now you look at their history and I, it's been years since I've covered the NFL. I did for a lot of years, but you look at their history and they can't get it right with quarterbacks. Right. I mean, if you look over and over and over again, all these first round picks, it hasn't worked. And we all know that, yeah, you can have your Trent Dilfer every now and then to win a Super Bowl. There's actually something to that in this whole discussion about um, about roles and culture and all that. But they are. They're chasing a shiny object and nothing has worked. And so they saw an opportunity and they opened that Pandora's box. Maybe it'll work for them. Maybe it won't. But I think it's very telling that they went that route. Look at the Houston Astros, who have won a championship. I mean, I just saw as we're recording this, um, I just saw the other day that uh, Brian Cashman, the GM of the 
of the New York Yankees was saying, I'm sick of something along the lines of I'm sick of hearing people saying we haven't been in the World Series in 20 years. We believe we should have been in the World Series, if not for the cheating of the Houston Astros. So, you know, he kind of stirred that up again. You could say, you know, I'm like a lot of people around the country that Yankees are sort of the same way, love or hate, because, you know, they're they're the depending on how you look at it, like America's team, like the Cowboys, uh, you, you know, or, or they're the evil empire because most people that aren't Yankees fans are going to say, boy, we wish we had that. But you don't see a lot of immoral stuff with the Yankees. I mean, it was a reach maybe to get a rod with some of his stuff, but you don't see a whole lot of like Aaron judge is one of the, one of the, not just great players in baseball. He's one of the great citizens in baseball. And, and so the Yankees do pride themselves on that. The Houston Astros made an effort to tank. The Houston Astros made an effort to lose as many games as they could to get great draft picks. And they did. That's how they got a guy like Carlos Correa. It's how they ended up winning a World Series. But they also, in the midst of that, if that was a Pandora's box, as I'm saying with, with Cleveland, they also had the cheating scandal. Um, they had scandals in the clubhouse with with um, with club personnel insulting women, uh, you know, female reporters. There have been they they had an incident where Justin Verlander didn't like a reporter that had covered him in Detroit and wouldn't wouldn't let him into the clubhouse, which is against the rules. So there have been a, a steady um, stream of incidents that have happened with Houston that you kind of could see coming. So what is it worth to win a championship? Maybe that's it. But I, I, I maybe I'm old school. Maybe I'm naive. But I, I think I'd rather do it my way. Yeah, no, I agree. So, you know, as, as you see some of these teams that have the, 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 the Royals way, you know, the, the Cardinals way, and you, uh, somebody comes to you and says, hey, Joel, you know, I'm starting up a company. I've got, you know, two employees. You know, w- what's my next employee? You know, sometimes. Um, We'll look at a company and we'll say, you know, you got like 70% of your payroll is going towards like your back office. Like you don't have a wide receiver, you know, you don't have uh, any, any playmakers here and you got to pay up for the playmakers at the same time, you know, you've got to control how they operate. And, you know, is there, you know, on most checklists I've, I see um, or some of the case studies that they have people do, it, it's not based on this culture. And, and have you seen companies either use some kind of tools or techniques or, you know, stop and say, Hey, look, yeah, this guy's great. You know, he's the top sales guy at salesforce.com. We run a software company. Let's go and get him at all costs. Um, or you can say, Hey, look, that's great. But you know, we did some, we did some digging. And the reason why he's looking for another job is because he's not very popular or he's not a team player. Um, you see this in banking a lot, you know, where there's, you know, rainmakers and, you know, they're making rain, but they're also, uh, you know, you know, creating a lot of, you know, carbon dioxide in the process. I mean, that, that stuff all has an expiration, you, you know, um, they, they might, might, they, they might make rain until they don't. And, and, and they've disrupted everything around you. So that to me is like a little bit of what I was saying. You go back to Deshaun Watson in Cleveland, maybe it'll work out. And, and I don't know, maybe that's the price that some are willing to pay to win i mean that's that that is a profit first people second type of approach it works for some i maybe maybe again i'm naive it, it doesn't work for me but i, I think that to me the best companies and i've seen this in sports i've seen this in business will say okay this is the role we need to fill so okay we need that wide receiver Ooh, and, and, and here's, here's our star wide receiver you know where, where is our where can we go find the next jerry rice 
where can we go find the next Terrell Owens? Now I'm talking about two different types of guys there, right? But are, are you willing to take on the baggage of that star banker, that rainmaker, or, or, or can you long-term be more sustainable and better by taking someone, this is not a nice guys finish last or nice guys finish first, nice guys finish last type of thing. You don't have to have a team of all the nicest guys and you're going to be terrible. But I think that you can you can take a notch down from that that rainmaker that is going to be very productive and very steady and is going to be a team player and make those around him better. By the way, not everybody needs to be the perfect human being. Uh, none of us are anyway. Not everybody needs to be exactly right. I've seen the Royals and other teams, for that matter, bring in guys that that did have some things that would concern you a little bit, but they knew that those flaws wouldn't sink the ship versus going all in and saying, I don't care. Give me the superstar. And it's, again, the chasing the shiny object. Oh, my gosh, look at what happens if we get this guy. Look at what happens when we get that. And I, I think that there is, it doesn't have to be an all or none, but I do think that Pete, when you, when you are bringing in whoever that person is, that rainmaker, that superstar or something a little bit less one, how do they fit into your team and your culture Two, how do they fit in that role? Because you can't have a team of superstars. I mean, we've seen it work at times in the NBA. We've seen it work. Even right now, as we're talking, I had somebody, this happens every year. I had somebody the other day say to me, why are they playing the season when the Dodgers are going to win no matter what? And I said, do you know that? Are you sure? And I think the Dodgers, for the most part, do things right. But things happen. Stuff comes up. I mean, the Dodgers had the Trevor Bauer mess on their hands, and I don't know where that's going. So things don't, and and by the way, um, I don't know anyone that could have predicted what was going to happen with Trevor Bauer. But I can tell you that guys around the league would grumble about him, just about some of his idiosyncrasies and some of his quirks. And I mean, you know, I, I saw the last game that he ever pitched for Cleveland, uh, and it, it became a very infamous one. He was pitching at Kauffman Stadium against the Kansas City Royals, and, and the Royals were just blasting him. And this is one of the best pitchers in baseball at the time. I mean, he's a Cy Young candidate. And, and every now and then you're going to have a bad day. And I think they, they got, got him for like eight or nine runs. I think it was a Sunday afternoon. and. He gave up a home run or the, the umpire threw the ball back to him and Terry Francona, the manager, comes out to get him. And this was seen all over the place. He grabs the ball and from the mound, he chucks it over the center field fence just because he was ticked off at himself. And uh, his manager's coming to replace him and the ball he's supposed to give his manager, he chucks over the fence and Terry Francona pulls him. And I'm getting off on a tangent, but it's a worthwhile one, I think. Francona, you know, usually the, the and Francona is a future Hall of Fame manager, the, the manager usually gets the ball, they wait, they give it to the next reliever, and then they go off, right? He never gave the ball to the next reliever. He was tailgating Bauer the whole way off and followed him right up the stairs. And we were in Cleveland a week, a week and a half later, and I I, I went to Francona, and I said, Tito, I called him Tito. I said, i got to ask you something, because this is a good lesson for business, too. I said, you you followed him right off the field. And uh, that typically isn't something that would be done. Tell me about that. And he said, you know, I typically would would um, praise in public and criticize privately. And I did follow him up the tunnel. So nobody saw what I said to him, but they saw me going there. He said, but he embarrassed himself and his 25 teammates at that point. I had no choice. All eyes were on me. And I had to address it in that moment. And I was really impressed because then we ran the postgame clips in our postgame show, which is what I host. 
of Bauer. We rarely, if ever, would run the the sound bites and interviews of the other team. We just were Royals. We're not Cleveland. And he was, it was this heartfelt two minute apology from Bauer. And it, it, it became very clear to me from a leadership standpoint that Terry Francona got to him immediately and, and explained to him what was acceptable and what wasn't. And it, it, and it was squashed because he handled it right there. So there was a great leadership lesson there. However, they did trade him a few days later. And now you see what has happened over and over again. So I, uh, the, the point, Pete, is that you can get the superstars. I'm not saying you can't take someone with warts. But generally, when they have those signs early on, something's going to come up. Do you want to go that route? Yeah, that's, that's a great lesson. Uh, I do remember that as well. You know, one of the things that I always loved about baseball is um, is all the fan appreciation days. So I go there, I get a bat, I get a you know a helmet, or I get maybe like one of those little helmets that you put the uh, mm-hmm. ice cream in. You know, when you think about companies doing things for their clients or the amount of volunteer work that athletes do in the community. You know, and if you actually did that same amount, I mean, we don't do enough of it. We do something with the FDNY, and that's more of a, you know, moving equipment from commercial clubs. But we're not actually allocating, you know, let's do four hours, six hours, you know, go clean up Central Park or let's go, you know, to a children's hospital or, or what have you. You know, do you see maybe given people going through COVID and, and people wanting more connectivity either to their teams or to people or to their communities that maybe there's some things that we can learn? from what the sports and athletes are, I would say required to do. But when I, every time I see these guys in it, like they love it. Like they're not, this isn't like an obligation. Like this is like a, it's like a treat. So how, how are some of the things that you've seen in the community um, evolve and how can we liken that to what we should be doing maybe more in business? I, I think so. Like what you just said, and it brought back, you know, those images and memories as a kid. And I, I could taste the Carvel ice cream too, which which we don't really have a whole lot of in the Midwest. I, I grew up out east, outside of Philadelphia, before moving to to the Midwest when I was thirteen. But um, as a kid, you love that stuff, right? The the the, the little the little helmet, the the, the mini bats. Uh, there came a point where you couldn't give all that stuff away because people were throwing it on the field <laughs> and all that. But but my my point is, most of those giveaways. They're not that expensive. It's cheaper stuff, but but kids love it, right? And then for the adults, what, what do we do as adults? We get it. We say, ah, this stuff's cluttered. Other than maybe like a bob, cool bobblehead or something, it clutters your stuff. Eventually, you throw it out. There's not a whole lot of meaning to it, but a great memory for the kids. So when you talk deeper in terms of community, in terms of your employees, to me, it has to be something a little bit more meaningful than that. And so it's easily done for a giveaway. I always say people love free stuff. We all love free stuff. I, by the way, the millionaire athletes love free stuff too. We all love being spoiled by things. But when what you do, and you talk about FDNY or any charitable you know, organizations that, that companies or people are working with, people remember experiences. People like to be taken care of. People like to feel important. People like to be validated. So I think that in the end, whatever you're doing for your employees like I, I feel like sometimes in this day and age, we measure culture in a company based on who has the 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 keg or the kegerator in the in the company kitchen, or who has the you know the the dartboard or the foosball or the cool fun toys to play with, and that's all great. But in the end, how are you treating your people? How are you taking care of your people? What is the expectation? And I think that goes beyond community too, or you know, into community as well. Can you provide them the experiences? One, one of my favorite stories I wrote about it in my book, and this does involve spending money. So I'm not saying 
you know, you just make people feel good. But um, as the Royals clinched one of their big um, playoff games and advanced to the next level, uh, Eric Hosmer, who at the time was kind of the face of the franchise and, uh, and speaking of FDNY is he, he, he grew up in Florida, but his dad was a New Yorker, ended up moving to Florida. It was a, a former fire firefighter and, and all that. But Hosmer was one of those guys that just got people. I think still does. He's in San Diego now. And, and he and a couple of teammates tweet something out after, after all the locker room celebrations and the champagne celebration saying, we're coming down to the power and light to, to McFadden's bar and grill. Uh, it's a big area in downtown Kansas city. Hope to see you there. Well, everybody saw that tweet and everybody went there. And when they let Hosmer and two of his teammates in the back door, Hosmer and those guys decide we're, we're going to drop. I think it was 10 grand on a bar tab, free drinks for everyone. And I'm not saying you got to buy drinks for a bar to, to do good things. But people remembered that experience. They remember being there. They still talk about it to this day. It doesn't have to be how much you spend. It has to be how you make people feel. The good organizations know how to do that. If it happens to come with a kegerator or a foosball machine or some kind of cool thing, uh, hey, my company took me to batting practice or whatever it is, great. Um, but it can't just be that. You can't just buy people off. It's got to be with meaning. So last question. You go into a lot of companies and you talk about building culture. You know, there either could be a playbook for that or it's like an aha moment to say like, hey, let me treat my employees like I treated my teammates when we were you know, on the field and we were going to win. It didn't matter. It didn't matter who scored the goal. It didn't matter who made the assist. It didn't matter what happened at the end. It just needed to happen. So, you know, maybe in, in closing here, you can give us, you know, a couple of, you know, bullet points, if you will, to say, look, here's like the first three things you need to really focus on and really be honest about you know, where your culture is not sugarcoating, you know, I think I got a good culture. I want to make it great. You know, maybe I have a, uh, you know, I got attrition. I got, I'm losing clients. I'm losing, you know, team members. And, you know, so maybe, maybe I I did go four and 12 if I'm doing a football, you know, analogy, you know, I want to go 12 and four. So Joel, like, give me the script or what, which were the first three things I should do or how, by the way, my, my, in my St. Louis days, my first full year there was covering a four and 12 Rams team that, that then the next year, I think went 12 and four and won the, won the Super Bowl. But I was still pretty young at that point too. So I, I don't, I didn't see them building the culture the way I've seen it in other places. I, I think a couple of things, Pete, one, I would say to me, and I already mentioned about everything, you know, is about people. I think that when you remember that the, the the late owner of the Kansas City Royals who passed away, uh, it's now been a year and a half, longtime CEO uh, of Walmart would always say to me, everything you do in life is about people. And he said, you, you know, you're not really much of a team without people. So that's the first thing is always taking care of people. We kind of covered that. The second one, how do you how do you take care of people? How do you get to a deeper level with your people within that culture? You have to build trust. And, and trust is another one that you just don't give it away every single day. One of the stories I talk about a lot is the fact that I, uh, it took me seven years to build trust with Albert Pujols. I was there the day he got there in St. Louis. This is potentially the greatest player of my generation. And it took me till year seven for him. And I'll see him uh, in a couple of weeks when the Royals play the Cardinals and, and I'll get a big hug and we'll catch up on life and all that type of stuff. It was never that way. And there's some ways that I went about it, but most importantly was I, I validated him as a person. I mean, as big of a deal as he was, all anyone was doing was that was asking stuff of him. So whether that's our own people or, or our, our clients, our prospects that we're working with, 
we all want to ask, 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 ask. Uh, what are we what are we doing for people? How how are we listening to them? How how are we giving them a voice, even the superstars? And so, you know, years later, Albert said to me, he said, I, I told him that that he used to scare me because he'd say no to me all the time. And and he got embarrassed and he said, Everyone wants something from me. Once you've earned my trust, I'll do anything for you. So when we can build that trust internally or externally, it does a lot. The last thing I would say is this: the importance of everyone in an organization. And beyond your organization mattering, we can get so focused on the superstars on in the sports venues, um, that hotshot banker that you're talking about. What what about the receptionist or or uh, the event planner or whoever it is in that organization that doesn't want the attention, but would do pretty well with a pat on the back? Not everyone needs to be in front of the camera like I am, but I can tell you right now. That when everything goes wrong or everything's going haywire in the truck because stuff happens, those are the guys getting it done. Those are the guys building the graphics. Those are the guys running the cameras. Nobody knows their name. And so I'll I'll wrap it up with you with this. In 2014, the Royals signed on, he's on the verge of retirement, Raul Abanez, played for the Yankees, played for the Phillies. Um, Amazing story. And I talked to Raul Raul, um, for my book. He was born in the Bronx. 1972, uh, late May of 72, his family had come from Cuba. Now, back then, so his brothers, his mom, his dad are all born in Cuba. Back then, you could buy your way out of Cuba. It was really, I don't know if it was simple. Instead of having to jump on a boat, you you would work for the government. So his dad was a high-level, high-paid chemist. And he made the decision for the freedom of his family to go pick sugarcane in the sugarcane fields. And and essentially went from a high-paying um, highly respected job to that, to going to the Bronx, to, to doing, you know, some more lower level jobs. He was a smart guy and, you know, kind of starting as an immigrant again. So here's Raul, uh, who, by the way, you know, born in the Bronx and 40 years later, as a 40 year old comes in in a playoff game against Baltimore and pinch hits for a rod in the ninth inning, hits a home run to send the game to extra innings and they end up winning it. There's a role. This, this guy is just a role player at that point. Now he comes to Kansas city. In, in three months, he's cut by Los Angeles, the Angels. Uh, the Royals pull him in. He had been there early in his career, beloved in every clubhouse, you know, all over Seattle, Philadelphia, New York, Kansas City, on and on and on, uh, Los Angeles. And bilingual, everybody loves him. But, I mean, he bats 188 with two home runs for the Royals before retiring. He's not even on the playoff roster. They make the playoffs. They, they, they end a 29-year drought. Why does every player on that team from 2014 credit Raul Labanias for getting there when, when he wasn't even on a playoff roster? He was he had a role. He played that role. He was that mentor. He was that calming influence. He was that veteran presence. And so I said to him in July of that year, a month after the Royals get him, they've, they've lost four in a row. They're playing terribly. They're in Chicago. This was the year that they're going to end the 29-year playoff drought. They're the young team that everybody thinks can finally do it since 1985 and they're playing terribly he calls a players only meeting which doesn't happen a whole lot he gives a rah-rah speech he's a pretty quiet guy letting these guys know you're better than you realize you are we have more talent we have more relief pitching we have more defense i've got friends all over the league that are scared to 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 play us and they go on to win something like 27 of the next 32 games And, and and those royals players will tell you that he was one of the main reasons so he gave me a quote where he said i said to him how did you know it was the right time? He said, timing is everything and you got to earn that trust and that respect. He said, reading the room is about feel. 
It's understanding when and where, having the empathy piece to know that guy doesn't want to talk today and knowing the different personalities. If you're a bull in a china shop, you never notice. He knew how to read people. He knew how to, to find the right timing, the right moment. Every organization needs more people like that than the superstars or the guys that come with the massive problems in the Pandora's box that I mentioned. <clears throat> you can't put a value on that. It doesn't cost as much as the others. That to me uh, is that other step, having people that understand their roles and respecting those people. Look, man, that was a, that's an unbelievable ending to the story, to the story here. I'm like, I got goosebumps right now. Um, I hope our listeners really just, just digest this and just think about how powerful your organization can be if you stop and think about who's in it, how you treat people, what you're trying to, you know, what results you're trying to get and, and playing the long game and bringing in the right, you know, personalities and, and listening, you know, to, to make that happen. So, Joel, great to great to talk to you. Great to see you. Um, all the best in everything you're doing and keep spreading the gospel because, you know, one person at a time, this domino effects. And I really do think that in addition to be, being able to see more and more sports franchises and amazing games because the athletic ability is only going to get better with science and with, mm -hmm. you know, preparation that you and I unfortunately didn't have access to, you know, it's going to come down to culture and it's going to come down to listening to people and working together, you know, in order to accomplish amazing things. So great to talk to you and, uh, you know, look forward to meeting you in person and uh, yeah, great, great, great story. So thanks a lot. Appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Pete. Yeah, Pete, thank you. Go Halo. Uh, Dave, thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad that uh, Worth the wait. Awesome.